Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 116. This interview is with Sri Srinivasan, at Sri on Twitter and Chief Digital Officer at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Having had the chance to know and hear Sri speak multiple times, including in Shanghai and at NetExpo in 2014 UNESCO's headquarters in Paris, and for having followed Sri for many years, I took this opportunity to discuss Sri's work at the Met. Taking the grand dam of the Met into the new age has been Sri's journey. In this interview, we discuss some of the major challenges in tackling digital transformation, the importance of the role of the CEO, and some of the key success factors for the Met in its digital transformation journey. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to quick. Enjoy the show. Anyway, and of course, everything is going to be edited afterwards. So we are good. Um, now I need to just actually have you in the screen. That's better. All right. So, um, Sri, why don't you tell us uh, who you are, what you do first? Hi, my name is Sri Srinivasan, and I'm the Chief Digital Officer at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. I've been working at the Met for a little over a year. I spent 21 years at Columbia University as a professor of digital media and the journalism school, as well as the first, I was also the first chief digital officer at Columbia University. Sri, when you are looking at the Met Metropolitan, where, how does digital fit into your strategy and the organization more globally? The way I look at the role of digital at the Met is that it's part and it's it's part and parcel of the Met future and what it's doing today. Uh, the reason I left Columbia to come and work at the Met was for a chance to take an or to work with an organization that's been so successful for so many decades and see how it can make the uh, make digital more integral to its working, uh, its day-to-day -day work. And um, what we're looking at is uh, we have uh, only only three locations for two now, and we're about to have three locations. We have uh, the main building at, uh, at on Fifth Avenue, which most people know. We have a location called the Cloisters, which is a medieval museum and gardens up at the northern tip of Manhattan, as well as uh, what's called the Breuer Building, which we're going to be occupying next year. Uh, that's the building that the Whitney Museum, which is a beautiful museum in New York, is moving downtown to the High Line, and so we're going to be taking over that space. So now we have these three locations, and we are thinking in terms of those three plus a fourth location, which is digital, the Internet, our online presence. And what we're trying to do is to connect the digital and the physical to make an a kind of virtuous circle between uh, our, our physical visitors and their online experience and make that, you, we want people to have such a, uh, a wonderful experience online that they want to come to the museum and then once they come they love the connections that they make and what they see so much that they want to uh, keep connected with us after they leave. Alright, so you've been uh, doing digital at Columbia and at the Met what would you say is the one thing you've learned about digital and its role in business, in the business with the customers? 
I think one thing I've learned about business and digital uh, over these uh, two decades uh, it comes from my work both at Columbia University dealing with students and the other is working at the museum dealing the world of uh, arts and culture and and that one thing is that this is con the digital is constantly changing and that you can't stand still that you want to have as much of an open mind as possible you want to be hungry to renew uh, what makes sense for you and what doesn't uh, the w way I look at this is that um, uh, as soon as you feel like some level of comfort with any technology, it's changed. And that means that you have to be uh, thinking about what's, what's ahead. Another way to think about this is uh, one, what one of my colleagues at Columbia came up with. He coined a term called the tradigital journalist. That's the traditional journalist with a digital overlay. That means you understand all the and, and this is a this is a phrase now I use for everything: a, a traditional curator, a traditional business executive, a traditional CEO. That all of us need to have kind of the basics, uh, basic grounding of whatever profession we're in, as well as the ethics and high values and uh, high standards of everything we do. But we have to build in a digital overlay that uh, helps us understand new audiences, how to engage with customers, and how to pay attention to what's new. You notice that the key part of this is the traditional comes first and not the digital. Uh, and that combination is really important as we think about what's working and what's not and, and how we, we think about the future. Listening to you, Suri, we, um, the traditional and the digital, uh, it, it resonates a lot, and I think especially if you're in industry. When you, um, when you think of the curator, the curator typically has a, a strong perspective and a point of view. To what extent is, a, is, is it easy or what's your journey been like in having the curator accept the, the point of view that comes back in a Web 2.0 experience? When I first uh, left Columbia uh, and told people I'm moving to the Met, several said, "Well, how will you get a hundred curators to move in the in, in kind of new directions?" And I said, "I don't need a hundred curators to move uh, in new directions. And first of all, if they all volunteered, there would be no way to handle all of them. What you need in any organization are a few people who want to experiment, want to try new things, and you bring them along." That's sort of how I look at it. And then you work with them, and they become uh, uh, examples for others to emulate or to ignore, depending on what it is. And I had a lot of experience with that because I dealt with professors for two decades. And at Columbia, we had 1,200 uh, professors with tenure. And, um, and so that means that they, they are very comfortable in who they are. They're the world experts in their topics. But they're not necessarily expert at getting the word out, at connecting, at reaching out. So let me give you a couple of examples of projects we've done that I think can translate in other areas as well, in other industries as well. The first is a project called 82nd and 5th that's available on the web if you search for it and available as an iPad app. And these are, uh, uh, this is a video series where we had 100 curators talk about 100 objects for two minutes each. 
and that means their favorite object at the Met. So you can imagine curators who are, as I said, these world experts who spend their entire lives studying a few things. When you ask them to speak, they don't want to speak for two minutes. They want to speak for two hours, two days, two weeks, two books. So what we did was we worked with them and helped them kind of think about how do you tell a story in two minutes. And it took some work, but eventually we're very proud of the series we put together, available in 12 languages. And what this has done is made our work accessible without uh, uh, reducing the scholarship, the authority, the credibility. And that is also important. You could make uh, simplistic, joking material, but while that has a role, that's not what curators are interested in. But how do we make things more accessible without losing that credibility? So that's an example, and I think lots of people would be interested in any industry. This idea of storytelling, I think, is going to become more and more important. Another uh, example is uh, of a painting that we bought in the last few months. It's called uh, we. It's it, it's a painting by Charles Lebrun of a 17th century family. Uh, known as the Yabach family, J-A-B-A-C-H. And now this is a, a name that's been sort of lost in history, but this family was so important that their collection was the founding collection of the Louvre. So you can imagine a portrait of this family made in the 17th century is of immense uh, cultural and historical value. Well, Charles Lebrun made two paintings of that. Uh, he made two versions of the painting. The first went to an English castle and sat there for 250 years. The second went to Germany and was destroyed in the war. We bought that first painting and brought it to the Met. And typically, we buy something, we work on it, we restore it, and then we don't unleash it for another year. And then we just presume everybody will want to come and see it. Well, that's no longer the case. You have to bring your own audience. You have to make your own audience. You also have to show people, seeing uh, kind of a flavor of what's going on behind the scenes. People want that. So here's what we did. We worked with our uh, head of European paintings, Keith Christensen, and our head of European uh, uh, um, conservation, our chief conservator in European paintings, Michael Gallagher, two of the most uh, successful um, uh, senior people at the museum. Uh, who are at the top of their game and you know don't have to be even thinking about what's how do I expand how do I try new things they don't need to be doing that but they are doing that uh, with a series of blog posts and what what's so interesting about this painting it's one of the largest in our collection it's huge and the 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 place that had had this painting this English castle uh, they had taken the top third of this painting, folded it over, and stuck it in a frame for 250 years. And in the old days, the Met would have uh, been deeply afraid of that crease and pretended that crease doesn't exist. Here, instead of running away from the crease, we're embracing the crease. And we're showing how we're working on it, and we're showing uh, pic photographs, and I hope to do some videos, but just talking about what we're doing uh, has immense impact. It's a beautiful story. So um, how important is being customer-centric in your digital strategy, Sari, at the Met? 
Well, uh, we are a B to C business, as you like, as you can imagine, and the C, the consumers here, we have six million people who come in person uh, to the Met, and um, we have a digital presence that's uh, you know eight times larger than that. And what we uh, have to do is to treat our customers uh, uh, and and our and think about them all, all the time. Uh, all we've done is to change one aspect of this in the last few years. We were only thinking about, uh, as I say, putting butts in the galleries, and uh, now we're thinking about also eyeballs on the internet and marrying those two numbers together and those two uh, strategies together, and they form one one way of looking at our customers. And this would not be possible without leadership at the very top. Our CEO, our COO, our president, our director, who uh, are um, uh, not just supporting us, but are leading us uh, in that direction. So for them to say, for Tom Campbell, our uh, director uh, uh, and CEO, to say to, uh, say to us that it is going to be as important for us to reach people who will then come to the museum as to reach people who may never come to the museum is a huge factor in how we think about our, our work. That means it's part of our mission to reach the world. It's our mission to educate people about art and we're able to do that. But it, that's why I think what you're doing, working with uh, senior executives, uh, helping them understand digital and understand digital strategy is so important. Uh, and um, the leadership has to be there, but so does middle management. And uh, we all need to be working together. Uh, you know, a lot of people say, oh, middle management is blocking things, roadblock, uh, uh, bottleneck. And in some cases they are, but in many cases they don't understand the connection between the digital and the bottom line. And the more we can show them that, the better off uh, I think we all are. And just as an example of our uh, of our um, leader, uh, he is now very active on Instagram, and he didn't have time for Twitter, you know, uh, as, as because I'm active on social. Uh, everyone said to me, "Oh, so are you going to put Tom on Twitter? And is he going to be tweeting every day?" And I said, "No, he doesn't need to be tweeting every day. I want him to be running the institution." When Barack Obama announced that he's going to be on Twitter personally, I wrote a piece saying it's a terrible idea. I want him to run the country, not get in Twitter flame wars and uh, at mentions and hashtags and fighting over all those things. I want him to concentrate on his work. With with our boss. He's a global director. He's traveling the world, and so just and he was already on Instagram. But what we did was help him think about a public persona on Instagram. So I hope you guys will check him out. How a CEO of a major institution is able to show personality, show authority, uh, and engage with the world through Instagram. His handle is Thomas P. Campbell. Thomas P. Campbell. So I hope you look him up. Love it. All right. Well, we speaking speaking of the boss, if you will. When you arrived at the Met, and as you're going on your you know operations, how do you justify or approach the question of return on investment with regard to your investment in digital? At the Met, we have uh, two uh, technology teams. There's a CTO, a Chief Technology Officer, 
who runs uh, the infrastructure, the networking, the computers, the uh, iPhones, uh, all of that, and we uh, and he and I work together. I'm the CDO, Chief Digital Officer, and we look at all the forward-facing part of the uh, of the museum. The forward meaning the uh, customer-facing part, uh, kind of think of front end and back end. And um, the museum has made a real commitment. I have 70 people on my team, uh, and for most people, that's a surprise. Uh, when we say that. And you kind of think of a museum as kind of an old dusty place. But what we're doing is we're working on uh, all, all the stuff that, that is tomorrow's technology, today's technology. We're working on everything from um, from uh, big data to uh, video to social uh, to mobile to apps uh, to email marketing. By the way, in a world where everybody talks about social this, social that, email still counts. It still makes the world work, and we're having this conversation because of email, not because of Twitter or Facebook or anything else. And uh, it's very easy to get caught up in fads, but um, we are really committed to this. Now, the question of ROI comes up when you talk about social. Also, it comes up: Is it worth it? We doubled our social media team to two people. Uh, most of your folks will have many more, you know, larger teams and all of that. But uh, people say, well, you have 70 people. How does the museum justify it? How do you justify it? Well, in a way, I think of it at, at kind of the most basic level. It's the cost of doing business. What is the ROI on your electricity? What is the ROI on your telephone lines? Well, you still have to have them. You're not getting, you know, making a dollar calculation every time you uh, use the phone or you connect the lights or you turn on the lights. So that's a basic level. The other is that we're still, um, uh, what our job is, is to get the word out about what you're doing. And to get the word out, you have to work really hard at it. Uh, let me tell you a quick story that um, uh, reinforced this to me. One of, in my mind, one of the 10 most important people in the world is a guy named Sal Khan, Salman Khan of Khan Academy. And he, as you might know, has revolutionized K-12 education. And we're working with him on a project, and he says to me and to Tom Campbell, our director, he says uh, that the vast majority of people who can benefit today from my technology have never heard of us. And that means we have to work hard to get the word out. And it struck me that if Sal Khan and Khan Academy need to work on marketing and getting the word out, then what hope do the rest of us have? Because what we're selling is this beautiful art that makes you feel good, that inspires you, but it's not the same as what Sal's selling. Sal is selling, uh, giving away, he's not even selling, right? He's giving away this unbelievable technology that will change your kids' lives tonight, that will help your neighbor's kids tonight, that will help you tonight, and still people don't know about it. Then what hope do the rest of us who are selling whether it's a, a, a few dollars of admission or a, a, a big a consumer product or a business product, what hope do we have? We have to really, the digital part of this is incredibly important going forward. Speaking about your customer at the Met, Sri, does the digital connected customer make new or different demands upon your business? Well, we already have a very demanding, discerning clientele. We have, uh, as I said, the 6.2 million people. 40% uh, of them are from outside the United States. Uh, that means we have to think in new ways of uh, 
connecting, communicating with them. And same thing online. Uh, we have, well, they are demanding. Uh, one of the things is that people don't want to just sit back and uh, watch everything you're doing. They want to actively engage. They want to talk back to you. They want answers. They want uh, uh, people to respond to, uh, to, to them. And so that means, I mean, part of the reason we went to this uh, two-person team of, on social media and uh, is that we, we could now post 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week. Um, you know, that doesn't mean all the time, and I don't, I, I'm not a slave driver. We don't have our people coming in at four in the morning, but you have tools that allow you to do this. And what I'm, uh, so that's, that's an example, that you have to communicate in the time zones that they're in. Uh, you have to communicate where they are. We have... Uh, about seven different social media platforms that we're on, and each of them is specifically chosen, selected because they make sense for us and what we do as uh, as an organization. Another thing that we have to worry about is being multilingual. We have to get our the word out in what we're doing in their languages, and that's something that's really important. Um, a case study for us is China. China is a big market. Uh, they're opening a museum a week. 300 million Chinese have passports, and they form 10% of our visitors. 10% knocking out the French, the Spanish, the Italians, the British, uh, the Canadians who are so close by. So what does that mean? We have to be thinking in ways to reach them, both when they're at the museum, but also getting them to the museum. And so what that has meant is to do more work in Chinese. And uh, we do all this hard work on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube, and it's all blocked in China. So what we've done is to take our, uh, our, our, our material and look at the best possible venue for Chinese work. And what we have now selected is Weiboa, spelt W-E-I-B-O, which is a big Chinese network, and um, we started posting on there. We called it a pilot project, which is the way you get anything done in a big organization uh, and, or an experiment, and working with our experts in our art, uh, Asian art department who speak Mandarin. We have uh, posted uh, things on a, on a daily basis, and what's amazing is in the first four months, we had three million views of our work in, uh, in Weiboa. That tells you a lot about China and the size and scope of, uh, of China. Uh, and uh, so that's an example that you have to adjust and you have to meet your clientele where they are. Great. Um, so I thinking about the Met again, um, and and you've come along and, and I you know one has to imagine that the Met, as you were saying before, is you know it's a large institution. Uh, people have been around a long time. Uh, lots of curators we're talking about. How has your governance? The governance, and you know, like the decision-making processes. How have they? How has it evolved over time? Well, what we have uh, done is uh, making sure that the that the people who work at the Met have uh, a, a real role in helping shape uh, the the museum and its future. And we have, by the way, it's not just the curators who have been there a long time. It's also the professional staff, who are the non-art historical staff, have been there. Uh, we have 2,200 people, and uh, I. This is not scientific, but I, I feel like everyone's been there 25 years or more, or three years or less. And uh, what that means is that they uh, have they love this place. I mean, the reason they're there, every one of them loves 
walking through the galleries, loves uh, thinking about the art, and then preserving the art for the future. It's like a sacred trust everybody has there. And the director and our president, Emily Rafferty, have um, made systems for uh, feedback, for, uh, uh, for constant um, uh, uh, opportunities for people to, to speak. So, for example, um, we, uh, every, every time our board meets, uh, uh, the next morning, the board chair gives what's called a chairman's briefing. So four times a year, I uh, gives a chairman's briefing to everybody, everyone in the company is invited. And he speaks, and the, and the director, uh, CEO, they speak about what they just learned the night before. And that's wonderful, and that kind of transparency. Obviously, we're, we're, we are a public company, not because we are shareholders, but we have this public trust. We, uh, we have uh, the city, we're on city land, a city property. So we uh, believe in that transparency already. But for me, this was refreshing to see this. And uh, I would have thought maybe the chairman would speak once a year to the staff, but every time, uh, that's, that's a lot. Multiple town halls. Uh, multiple um, study days where people uh, are exposed to new ideas and then they hear back. And um, uh, it's not called that here, but uh, at the New York Times, the editor-in-chief of the, the executive editor of the editor-in-chief of the New York Times, Bill Keller, had a wonderful um, uh, regular meeting he called Throw Things at Bill, where people could just ask him anything. Uh, and, you know, we live in a culture of AMA, ask me anything from Reddit and other things. And uh, our, our, our director, he doesn't say throw things at Tom, but essentially that's what it is, where he gets up there and he just says, ask me anything. And people do ask. And these are very comfortable, confident people who could work anywhere in their industry and have uh, been selected to work here and have chosen to stay and so they're very proud of their institution and they feel uh, a responsibility that of, of course that comes especially from working at a nonprofit but there's and I've worked with dozens of nonprofits uh, in my life but there's something very unusual and very special about the way the employees look at their mission here yeah, when, you, when you say three I mean when one counterpoints against a lot of companies where the the comms team, the PR team wants to get manage all these conversations so that you know the message is managed, like you know, sort of fighting against that. So um, I want to. Oh, by the way, I, I want to make it clear that there there's plenty of attempts to manage uh, all of that at the Met. Also, that you know, we want to be careful. We because there are a lot of eyes on us because there are politicians involved. Uh, so we're very, we, you know, this is not, I, I want to make it clear, this is not uh, uh, as if it's, we're, we're run by Mark Cuban and everybody's just kind of sprouting off whatever they want or Richard Branson or, you know, Larry Ellison, whatever. It's not that kind of place. Uh, everything is done carefully, strategically, but with an opportunity to participate. And um, that balance is important. And there's certainly nothing wrong with being in a company where everybody gets to say whatever they want. But people can misinterpret that kind of freedom, and so you have to be careful about that. Thanks for that um, qualification. All right. So speaking about Tom, Natalie, and and the and the rest of your peers on the executive committee, how and when do you, and why do you see them becoming digitally fluent? 
One of the reasons why our director Tom, our president Emily, and our and my uh, and and my boss, so these are my bosses, Carrie Barrett, who's our deputy director. All of these folks uh, are, are are so digitally aware because, uh, in part, they live in New York. They see these other businesses of uh, spending a lot of time and energy on digital issues. Uh, they are also um, their board is filled with uh, uh, captains of industry, uh, male and female, who um, are dealing with digital all the time. So they come back to us and give us uh, constant uh, ideas about what's working in their business. So that becomes a reason you're able to hear. But also, they go out a lot to various places to listen. And that listening part is really important. Even my own role as chief digital officer, I think, is the chief listening officer of the company. And um, so they have been able to really uh, uh, set the stage for not just me, but others who are interested in technology, uh, giving us space to thrive, to lead, to have an impact. And um, having that top leadership be so open is refreshing and very uh, critical to uh, our success. All right, we're speaking technology on another level. Um, when you, you create a strategy, you, you want to think about what can digital and social do to help my, my objectives and my overall company progress. The issue oftentimes when you speak to your CTO is do you have the infrastructure behind it? So when and how did you look at the dimensioning of the infrastructure behind what you're trying to achieve in order to get to execute your strategy? By the way, I see that because of the lighting and dawn in New York, uh, I'm turning orange here, so I hope that's all right. It's all right. Uh, <laughs> We're going to focus on the content. Our, um, uh, one of my most important partners in, in, our, in my journey is Jeff Spar, who's the CTO of the museum. And uh, we talk uh, multiple times a week uh, and sometimes multiple times a day about infrastructure and uh, and uh, projects and uh, uh, all of that, but we also talk about the opportunity and how we can um, get resources to do what we want. And we all have one goal, which is to support the director's strategic vision to reach the world and to serve our in-person audience and also at the same time make it really comfortable for all these great employees to work and, 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 and do great work every day. So that's, that's sort of how we, we, we look at it. We have a technology committee of our board of trustees. Again, very senior people uh, who are used to spending a lot more money in their own operations on technology compared to us. But they, uh, they guide us. They ask us tough questions. And uh, it, it makes a difference uh, in, in helping shape what we do. So talk to, talking there about technology, when we look at resources, uh, there's also people. So how has the recruitment process changed for the Met uh, with regard to getting new talent on board? At the Met, we have uh, two kinds of, well, more than two, but I think of kind of two kinds of employees. We have the folks in the art side of the business uh, whose lifelong dream has been to work at the Met and are now here. And therefore, you don't need to sell them on a coming, be staying at the Met. 
on the other hand, almost every other part of the business uh, has people who love the Met but may not have ever thought of working at the Met when they were growing up. And especially in my department, the digital media department, where we have folks who are terrific at technology, they didn't grow up necessarily thinking that I want to work in art, I want to work in nonprofits. And remember, they also have the same skills to work on Wall Street, the same skills to work in a startup. So that means attracting the talent, keeping them, uh, is very important. My background uh, at Columbia, where I was for many years a dean of student affairs, means that I um, understand as much as one can the millennial mindset, as well as uh, how to nurture, um, reward, and engage with people uh, you know, under 40. And so that's been very important in my work. But what we have to do is get the word out. And um, traditionally, the Met has been uh, all about kind of recruiting through connections, through internal processes. Now we're much more public, and uh, we, we post our jobs on LinkedIn, and we want to see more people apply through LinkedIn. And uh, you know, at any time, the museum has 100 job openings, just as any big institution. They have lots of openings, and we have a couple of recruiters. So what we need to do is really push. At the moment, I have nine openings in my department, and I'm, I have to push and be a salesman for, for us. Uh, and uh, so anyone listening who has uh, folks who are, are not, we don't want to poach your people necessarily, but uh, if you have folks who like the intersection of technology, art, culture, nonprofits, and will work for a nonprofit salary, send them my way. I love it, Suri. Um, so I got two last questions before we um, we call it a quits. The first one is about in in this internet world, things are changing so often. As you were saying at the very beginning, test and learn. So the question I was going to ask you is that when you are in business and, and you're running the company, especially if you're a senior person, uh, you're, you're paid and you're, you got there because you've been right a lot of the time. So what pressure does this test and learn approach or philosophy put on you as, a, as a, you and your team? Um, well, one of the things that test and learn does for an institution is it encourages you to think about new ways of doing things and be uh, open-minded to trying new things. Uh, at a big institution, once things become a project, they, they take on a life of their own, momentum of their own, and they're too big to not just fail, but to even be questioned sometimes. So what we're trying to do is try to do smaller things at smaller scale, and then if they work, to expand them, rather than assign them a project, a project number, a project team, project budget. So that's something that we're thinking about and, and doing more of. And if we can combine that with what's already working, I think we have a lot of opportunities uh, for success. And that's something that we all should be thinking about uh, in whatever industry we're in. All right, the last question, and it's sort of at sunrise in Manhattan, but it's about sunsetting. So you, you do these little projects, and, and hopefully they all succeed and become you know, gospel and eternal. But then there are others that you do, if you're testing and learning, you're also testing and failing at times. So how do you approach actually killing unsuccessful projects? We, we, we often have to think about killing projects, and that means uh, uh, having the confidence that of, of your team 
and knowing that the reason we're killing, you know, being absolutely transparent about why something's being killed, but also giving them the confidence that you were completely vested and supportive, even if it's only up to that point, so that they know you gave it a chance. Uh, what I have seen in other venues is when you kind of come in with a pronouncement that we're killing this, uh, that's the most disappointing thing. But what's even more disappointing is if they thought you were never there with them every step of the way, the first part of that journey. So I think that as long as you're able to communicate that from the beginning, that, hey, we're going to try this. I understand what you're doing. You gave it the best possible try. It just doesn't fit in with what we're trying to do here. That's why having the goals is so important, because if you have the vision, the mission statement, and the goals, then everything can be tested against that. And if it doesn't fit, you move on. And uh, I will leave you with a, uh, a simple story about where good ideas can come from. And a lot of people think good ideas can come from uh, you know, interns, young people, and they can. And we really try to surface those. But I want to tell you a story about a good idea that came from the very top. And just because a good idea comes from the very top doesn't mean we should ignore it, which is what some people think. Uh, our, our boss said to us, uh, Tom said, hey, you know, we have six million people who come here. We don't ask, and we give away free Wi-Fi. Why don't we ask them for their emails and see if they'll give it to us? Not force them to give it to us, not put a paywall or anything, a gate. Just give us your ask if you'd give us your email. And I said, terrible idea. We'll get five addresses a day, and four of them will be Mickey Mouse at Disney.com. And he said, well, what's the harm? Let's just try it. And let's see. So Jeff Spar and I, or the CTO and I, went away, and it took us several months and all of that. And we launched a, uh, a, a simple screen that says, would you like to give us your email address? Otherwise, skip and connect. And it takes 10 seconds to make a decision, and, you, and, you, uh, and it's implemented. It's, it, it's simple, elegant. Uh, and I still thought, you know, nobody's going to do this. Why would you do this? Well, it turned out in the first four or five months that we've had this up, not, we've not had five email addresses a day. We are now at 60,000-plus new, valid, unduplicated addresses. That's incredible, right? Everything I was reading among my peers in other institutions, all the cool kids were saying, do not put any barriers to Wi-Fi. That's also what I believe, by the way. I believe that it's a I want to turn on my computer, get on Wi-Fi. I don't want any marketing, nothing. But so going against my own instincts, the boss had an idea, so we listened to him and we tried this, and it is so, more successful than anyone could have imagined. You know the value of email: sixty thousand valid, and we're and, and hundreds every day, and that will come continue forever. What does that tell you? People love the Met, and people want good information. So it's not that people hate marketing. What they hate is bad marketing. Why do people read Vogue or Esquire, these magazines filled with more ads than content? Why do they love them? Because it's great stuff. So as long as you've got great stuff, people want to follow you, listen to you, buy your products, connect with you. Suri, I love it. I would have loved to continue on. Uh, you are a fountain of information, and I've, uh, I've, I appreciate you getting up at crack of dawn for me and for us. And uh, so thanks a lot, Sarik. You're welcome, and good luck to everybody. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. 
You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray. We've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, 
as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.